Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Faith in Your Recovery. I'm Randy Davis. I'll introduce you to our guest here in just a moment. But a couple of announcements first. Foremost, number one, Merry Christmas. Take care of this season and those around you. Be the blessing God wants you to be and make the difference he wants wants you to make. And this will indeed be a Merry Christmas. Number two, by this time next week, our next episode, we should be able to announce that Volume 2 of Recovery Conversations with Randy Davis is available at Amazon. We'll give you all those details, how to get it, the cost, everything that goes with it. Hang with us. We're looking forward to it. I told you I'd introduce you to today's guest, Levi. Levi Volroth, welcome. How you doing, Randy? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Folks, you're in for a special treat. I've heard of a lot of ministries, a lot of ways of of being there to help people out, a lot of ways to give of yourself, but I don't think I've ever quite heard of this method. I don't want to I don't want to pop the balloon. I don't want to spoil the story, so I'll let Levi take you here in a little while. But Levi, go ahead and catch us up. What does what did your past life look like? Are you in recovery? What was that struggle like? Tell the folks. Absolutely. So I grew up in a household of family of addicts and basically was an addict from the time I was young and Got sober for a little bit, but didn't stay that way and went back to addiction thinking that I could just use a little bit here and there. And about a year ago, I was just ready to commit suicide. I was so strung out. Early as a year ago, you were in that darkest of places. I don't know your absolute darkest, but certainly not a bright one. Yes? Yes, sir. Okay, tell us about that. Tell us what what that struggle looked like. I know there are folks out there that can relate who have been there who probably are there right now. So I ran everything I had into the ground, went from being homeless to having everything I thought I wanted in five years and started partying and was, wasn't fulfilled. I didn't have God in my life. And even with sobriety, I still felt empty. And so I started going back to using and it took me down to a point where I just wasn't happy. I didn't have joy inside me, no matter what the money, the family, none of that didn't make me happy because I didn't have Jesus within me, and I knew that. So, Levi, where are you from? Where? What was the area where all this took place for you? This isn't a put-down on the area. I just want folks to be able to identify. I grew up primarily in Indianapolis. I've been on my own pretty young, so I've been in some pretty bad areas, hanging out and stuff. Okay. Okay, and at what age did you start your your addiction habits thereabouts? I know you said you grew up in a home full of addicts. Go ahead, tell uh, us where your start was. My earliest memory, I think I was like four years old, and my dad was let me take sips of his beer if I went and got him out of the fridge for him and his friends. So 
it started then and then it like progressed when I was 13. He gave me Oxycontin for the first time. So pretty young. Okay. Okay. So was Oxycontin, was that something you continued to use at that time? Did that branch off into something else? Or what did your addiction look like at that age? At that young age, I didn't, I wasn't really a big fan of it. I mean, every now and then I do it, but I liked money. I wanted nice things because we didn't have a lot. So I would take the drugs and try to sell them to older people. I hung out with a lot of older females and older guys that were old enough to probably be my dad, but would hang out with them and sell drugs to them. And once I got a little bit older is when I started like using on a regular basis, but it just kind of introduced me to that and planted the seed of addiction very young. Okay, okay. So your source was getting it at home, taking it out, selling it to friends and other uh, various party goers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, my my dad told me he didn't he didn't care that I did that stuff or sell drugs. He told did tell me to stay in school and I'd be twice as smart as everybody else because he would teach me the streets and then I would learn other stuff in school. You'd have that going together for you. Yeah. So, how long did you stay in school? Did you graduate high school? Did you quit? What took place? I quit Karen in probably sixth grade, and I quit attending in eighth grade, the beginning of eighth grade at that, and ended up in prison for a really long time, like six years straight, and went back and got my GD and did some positive stuff while I was there and did it for the wrong reasons because I wanted to get out early. But as time went on, I realized it's probably one of the best things I ever did was furthering my education. So what was the prison term for? What were the charges? Um, bank robberies. Okay. Four robbery charges. Was that to get that money, to get those things you hadn't had before? Actually, I wasn't addicted to drugs at the time. I was always, a, more than anything, I was addicted to the world, like nice things, the things that I never had. I saw other people have, and I wanted I wanted that lifestyle. So it wasn't the drugs. And then when I started using, it just got worse. So I didn't actually start using drugs until like heavily until I got out of prison. Okay. Okay. And you said you were in about six years, yes? Yes, sir. Okay. Was that the only incarceration you've had? No, I started getting in trouble really young. Like when I was like eight years old, I started getting picked up by the police for petty charges, arson, theft. Just My parents never knew where we were, so didn't have that supervision. People to really tell me what to do at the time. And my grandparents tried to be the best parents they could, but we always ended back up with our parents, which... We wanted to be there because lack of supervision. You know, any kid wants to be where they have the most freedom. Yes. How many brothers and sisters did you grow up with, Levi? I have an older brother that's a year older than me, and then I have a younger sister that's eight years younger than me, and she grew up with my aunt. My aunt adopted her and raised her after she was eight years old. So, And since we're such difference in age, I was already in trouble by the time she was moved out and stuff and doing my own thing, so we never really had a relationship. Okay. Okay, what about that older brother? What, did he have his own issues, or was he able to escape by kind of clean? No, he's actually in recovery, too, and he used to be an alcoholic and stuff, and then when um, he ended up with diabetes when he was 16, I think, ended up in the hospital in a coma and quit drinking and stuff, but he's had his own demons and fought that as well, and him and I were really close until I went, like I said, I went to prison for a long time, and he moved to Florida and started a family and had kids, and we weren't in contact for all them years, so it kind of separated us a little bit. We we're not nearly as close as we used to be. 
So what did life look like once you got out of prison? How did that play out? I mean, I had ample opportunities to change. I had people in my corner that wanted to see me succeed and wanted to see me do good. But I went to prison when I was 17 and got out in my 20s. So I wanted to be a teenager, basically, and do what I wanted to do. So I started partying and thinking I was going to live life how I wanted to. And the people who really cared, I pushed them to the side and put the people who didn't care about my success or anything. They just wanted to party with me and head down that dead end. So I ran myself into a deep, dark hole that I didn't know how to get out of. How long would you say you stayed in that hole, Levi? Um, probably for about a year. I stayed in a year and a half. And uh, it was the point where my parole officer picked me up and said, uh, he dropped me off at rehab and was like, you can go in here and stay or you can leave and I'm going to go take you back to prison when I find you. And I didn't care. The addiction was so strong at that point that I walked out of rehab when he did. I left and went back to using and ended up going back to prison for it. How long that time? I went to prison for uh, two years. Pro violated me, and I ended up in solitary confinement for those two years and spending the whole time there. And at that point, I kind of surrendered and was like, God, I don't want to be crazy. I don't want to end up like these people in here crazy and have completely lost their mind, and I don't want to be an addict anymore. So please remove all these things from me and got out of prison and did really good for quite a while. So you said you kind of surrendered, surrendered to God at that point, not necessarily fully and totally, but at least initially. Absolutely. Yeah, I got out and um, I knew I needed help at that point. But in my mind, I've been sober for a while, so I didn't really need recovery. But I went to a halfway house anyways for kind of the structure because it went from solitary to the streets immediately. And uh worked the steps, like went to meetings and stuff and end up even having my wedding at the rehab center, and, and which was a great thing. And we had some good friends there, but I kind of got a big head. Like, you know what? I don't got to take a back seat, recovery, take a back seat. I got it figured out. I ended up opening my own business and becoming successful. So I didn't think I needed that anymore. I didn't think, like, oh, I, I got it. Don't worry about it. And it was like the job I ended up having before I opened my own company. I ended up with an office job of managing a multi-million dollar construction company. So we had happy hour, which was drinking Manhattans at noon. And it just progressed from there. I'm like, oh, I can drink a little bit. Which we know that you can't unlock the cage with the grill in it and shake and expect it not to come out. And that's essentially what drinking does. <laughs> Say that again. I like that term. It's like your brain, the way it's wired, when um, you have an addiction behavior, you uh, could use just a little bit, like drink a little bit, but your heroin, it doesn't matter. The same receptors in your brain are triggered. So it's unlocking the gorilla's cage, shaking it, and wanting him not to come out. He's coming out, and that's addiction. And that's where you were at that time. Uh, you Absolutely. shook your own cage and Absolutely. you came out back to that addiction or refreshed in that addiction. Absolutely. Okay, okay. So uh, I guess same old question. How long did that go on before there was some sort of positive turn it was a while, so I became like a functioning addict, as you call it. I was drinking at work, and, and then I started drinking at home, and I realized that I had a drinking problem when I would wake up sweating in the morning from not having any alcohol in my system. So I started drinking a little bit in the morning, and I knew it was a problem, so I started slowing down, and I convinced a doctor to give me Suboxone, but essentially it wasn't because I was an addict coming off heroin or anything. It was because I wanted something to counteract the hangovers in the morning time. 
and it just made it worse. I got worse and worse on that, and then it made me drowsy, so I started doing uppers. So it just kept gradually progressing, but I was making more and more money legally. So I'm like, oh, I'm doing good because everything is legal now. It's above. On paper, it was looking good, right? So And I'm spending a lot of money on drugs, but I didn't realize it because I was making good money at the time. So it was like, and my wife didn't know because she didn't know how much money I was making. I worked for myself. So she was completely unaware to what was going on. And it lasted for quite a while. She even at one point was like, you're a junkie. And I knew it in my heart, but I and I cried to her. I said, I can't get off the box. And it's like the most difficult thing I've ever been on in my life. You're not the first person I've heard say that. I hear others at times say, get that child on the box and get that Mm-mm. friend, that husband, that wife, whatever. And I'm thinking, I oppose be it. careful. I oppose it completely. Like, it is a miserable process of coming off of it, and it— to me, it's nothing but the government selling heroin. It really is. Like, it's just like the methadone clinic. But uh, it got to the point where I was, like, losing everything. I, we bought our first house together, and I was foreclosing on it and it lost my business. Like, just gave everything up that my wife helped me build. And uh, I remember I, like, poured gasoline on myself one day, and I was going to set myself on fire. And the only reason I didn't is because my wife came outside and was like, what are you doing? And she didn't quite know what was going on, but she knew something was off. And it I wasn't up, good. I ended up going inside, but that night I cried out to God. I was like, just let me die. Why do I have to suffer like this? And, like, the next day I ended up in jail. Okay. How long was it before the light came on, that aha moment? I don't know if your, your move forward was a move of God. I don't know if it's a personal decision. I don't know how that happened Tell us about where hope first gave you a glimpse of possibility. I mean, God was moving the whole time. So my wife relapsed with me eventually with me doing drugs. And we started doing meth together. And I was like seeing demonic stuff and freaking out. And uh, I cared, but I didn't care. You know, you can only care so much about other people when you're getting high because you're selfish. And I remember I had a, the Bible I told you I used to study when I was in solitary confinement. I didn't know where it was. It's been a couple years since I found it. So I went and dug it out of a closet. And, like, kneeled to her thing, and she's possessed. Like, And I'm still confident she was. I was like, God, I will give you my soul if you save my wife. And shortly after, she went and got baptized and continued on going to church without me. It was like, are you going? I'm like, nope. And I mean, hateful, not going with That was like God moving me in that direction. And after, I like, the day that I went to jail, I cried out to him in the holding cell, just, like, completely lost it. It was like, I'm sorry, God, for the things I've done. And gradually over time after going through detox and all that i just like surrendered like you know what i don't care if i go back to prison i mean i do for my family's sake but i'm comfortable with where i am and it doesn't matter where i am god i'm going to serve you now okay okay lead us forward from there what serving him looked like then and where it's at today so I went from uh, I went to that rehab back to the rehab center, which was a humbling experience that I started at when I got out of prison and uh, did the program there. And instead of like pursuing money like I did before and chasing that, I chased helping people. And I volunteered with St. Vincent de Paul and did homeless stuff. And people were telling me, you're crazy. You need to pursue your finances. You've already lost everything. And I didn't. I just kept pursuing helping other people instead of myself. And it kind of evolved. And like I've always had a gift of cutting hair. So I was feeding the homeless and stuff, and I'm like, it's just like God put on my heart to cut hair. So I started cutting the homeless people hair on the side of the street and stuff over there. And feed, how, how do you know you had the gift? 
I did it in prison. I cut hair with a comb and razor. And when I got out of prison, I kind of did it just as a side hustle to get okay. a little bit of gas money and stuff and okay. just continue to pursue it over the years. And uh, it just evolved. And then I started doing it on a regular basis on the side of the streets out front of the mission when we passed food out and then started going to shows and stuff and went to the Get Sober, Stay Sober event. And it was just like put on my heart. We ended up going there as a family thing, and uh, I felt like God pulled me in that direction to do it, and it just got me well-connected. And just recently, we went down to uh, Orlando and did a show there, and we're able to cut hair and talk about Jesus to people and tell them that you don't have to use drugs. You don't have to be like this. So you have a ministry, an outreach, however you want to label this. Of being a barber. Absolutely. Yes, I want people to get this clear because I've never heard of this before, and I love it. Absolutely. So I sit him down. Like, I had a conversation with a guy over the weekend in Orlando. He just got baptized, and I smelled alcohol on him. So I asked him if you want a haircut, and he was like, I don't want to waste your time. I said, no, come on. I sat him down. I asked him, don't you want to be, like, set free from this? Because you can. You don't have to live like this. And I know that— Haircuts change people's whole appearance. They change the way that people feel about themselves. If you're looking all scraggly, haven't had a haircut, your beard's messed up, then all you want is to get cleaned up. So it makes you feel good about yourself, and that lets people know that you actually care. And you get them sitting down and talk to them for 20 minutes, people tell their barber anything. So you might have somebody crying on your shoulder praying with you by the end of the haircut, which is a fantastic thing if you can get them set free. That... I love that. I just talked with a gentleman. He said two of the things that mean the most to us, at least the real near the top, is getting that haircut is one of them. Absolutely. And getting cleaned up, getting showered is the other. So you're able to offer them that haircut to go from, pardon me, that scraggly look to something with some style. Absolutely. And to restore that pride. You made mention of the Get Sober, Stay Sober event called We Do Recover that happened back in November in Monroe, Indiana. You came there that evening, correct me if I'm wrong here, wanting to be a participant and at the same time fighting with the ministry opportunities that were there. Is that correct? Absolutely. So we went as a family event. Like we had our nieces with us, I think. And uh, I told my wife, I'm taking my barber stuff. And if they let me cut hair, it's a goddamn. It was on my heart. So I went and found somebody while we were there. Like, can I cut hair? And they're like, set a booth up. And it was just a blessing. I did 18 haircuts that night. And at the end of the night, ended up on stage with the artist. Like, uh, God moves mountains. He makes it happen for you. You know what, uh, folks, if you don't know about the event, it's an incredible recovery event. There are hip-hop artists from all over the United States, several other artists. But I'm going to guess you were the only barber up there with them, yes? Absolutely. And then after, like, uh, so God has been putting all this music in my life for a while now. And uh, it's crazy. Like, uh, I got to hang out with Joe Nessa recently, and my sponsor turned me on his music. When I sat down and talked to Nikki Gracious, I'm like, I know I know him from somewhere. My wife's, like, thinking I'm still on meth or something because I said I know Nikki. And we're watching his music video, and after him and I sat down, we know each other from a previous life we used to live. We used to hang out with the same type of people. So we know each other through that circle, and now we're both— serving God together. It's just like he's opened up these doors for a reason. So you got to pursue his will, whether, I mean, even if the finances aren't in place, if it's his will, it's going to happen. So 
when you went to Florida, did you have plans before you ever left that you'd be cutting hair? Was that a part of your goal when you went down there? Tell us how that how that came together. Uh, so when we went to the Get Sober, Stay Sober event, we got invited out to another event the next day. So we like got home at 2 in the morning, got up for church, turned around, did the same thing over again, and ended up at Dilly's Restaurant in Akron, Indiana, and had like church in the restaurant. It can't make it up. Like, they opened the restaurant for us, fed us all, all the artists and stuff, and invited us. And we got invited out to the event in Florida by Joe. And uh, so I'm like, we don't have the finances to do this. So what we did was took, we're like, let's just look into the plane tickets and see how much it is. And if it's within reason, it's God's will. So 140 bucks round trip tickets to Orlando in December, which doesn't happen. So like now we have the problem of no place to stay when we get there. So let's figure this out. And uh, just pray like if it's God's will to happen. Well, the artist called us and said, we have a massive Airbnb. You can come out here and stay with us. We didn't pay for food or anything the whole time we were there. So the plan was going to cut hair. But how we were going to do it, we had no idea how this was going to happen. So how many uh, heads of hair would you say you cut? Do you uh, know? Upwards of 20 or more, but I didn't keep track. Of Over it. how long of a period of time? Um, Eight hours, something like that. Just a single-day event, you're cutting 15 to 20 heads of hair, give or take one or two either way, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, we went out there. We got there at 11. I set up and everything. They had the barbershop set up for me outside already. Super cool. If you check out my Facebook, you can see the pictures. Um, and so they had everything set up already. And funny story real quick, though, sidetrack. I went, I'm worried about getting my clippers through TSA because, you know, they're real big on batteries. Well, they let me get them through. I'm super nervous to get there. I didn't even need them. They had everything there for me. But it was like 11 to 7.30, so eight, eight and a half hours, cut hair, really no breaks or anything. And good time, though, it really was. <laughs> That's neat stuff. What's your goal? Do you have a goal? I know you're you're obviously trying to be obedient and follow as God leads you. I get that. But yeah. that doesn't mean he doesn't leave us room for goals, okay? We just can't let our goals get in the way of his. What Absolutely. are your goals for your ministry and your work now, Levi? So I, I paint houses for a living, and it's like another God thing. The guy now, hold on. I want to interrupt you. You're no. not a barber by trade your barber by practice if i can use that absolutely and you paint houses for a living yeah so i i do that to feed my family and pay the bills but i cut hair is a passion and uh i told the guy i work for he's a christian and he actually gave me time off work to come out here today and said uh I want you, you're a great worker, Levi, but I want you where the Lord wants you. So if an opportunity comes up, I want you to take it. And I told him that. So what I want to do is ministry full time, go around and tell people you don't have to use because drugs are a huge thing right now from little kids to older people. It doesn't matter. And you need Jesus. Everybody does. So that's my passion. Like if I can get out and travel and do that, even if it's in the city, and your calling is not your career. So I heard an artist say that, and it is so true. Like, a lot of these artists that you see that were even at the Get Sober, Stay Sober have jobs. So I want an opportunity to open up where God wants me at. And I recently found some people down in Florida that own construction companies that are good Christian brothers and talking to them. And another guy was like, I hire barbers to go around and cut homeless people's hair. So if a door opened like that where I can do the work I need to do to provide for my family, but also have the opportunity to be able to do ministry at the same time, that'd be a blessing. That'd be my goal, be able to have that balance. 
that would be an incredible thing. And who's to say it won't happen? Absolutely. All right. I mean, we went yeah. to the show for free, and I ended up, somebody came up at the end and gave me $300, which paid for our tickets and our rental cars. So, I mean, that's God right there moving. He makes a way. You go and be obedient and, and take a step of faith, and he'll pay the way. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, keep track. You're going to be amazed. There's going to be a book there one of these days, okay, of how God's directed you here or there and the opportunities and privileges he's provided. And you you mentioned earlier some of the stories you get just cutting somebody's hair. Absolutely. Uh, there's going to be some incredible witnesses and testimonies there so that I, you'll be able to offer. Actually, started uh, writing a book. It's just like in the beginning stages right now, but it's um it's not over yet, and it's for recovery. It's recovery based, and we the goal is to give it to recovery houses for free. And the people are going to be in there from like people like yourself, retired pastors, small business owners, all that, and that have been through addiction or know people who have or just know that they were missing something before they had Jesus in their life. And like all these big artists are going to be on the book and tell their story, like how they became men of faith and where they were when they found it. And some people you'll see were rich and some people had absolutely nothing. We're at the very bottom strung out on drugs, but we were like, everybody's story is unique, but everybody also has similarities too. We all have a God shaped hole in us. Absolutely. Uh, And the name of your your haircutting ministry is one cut at a time. Absolutely. Right? Yep. How do they get a hold of you? Say someone would like to book you, get you involved in some sort of program they're doing. How do they get a hold of you, Levi? So there's two numbers on my business card. Uh, one is 463-867-7119, and that's my direct line. And my wife also books some events for me, which is 463-867-9951. Or you can look me up on Facebook, Levi Volrath, and uh, you'll be able to contact Spell me there. Spell that last name. V is in Victor, O-L-L-R-A-T-H. Okay, Levi is the first name, just like the G's, L-E-V-I. Yeah, anytime it's something local, like in town, it could be in the state and within reason. If I can get home in the same night, it would be free to go there. Tell them where you're from. Let them know where you're talking about is that headquarters. Yeah, I'm from Indianapolis, so if it's within a couple-hour drive, and I feel like, and I'm definitely going to pray about it, but if I feel like the Spirit's pulling me there, I'll come do it for free. But if it's like somebody wanted me to come out of town, and I would have to get room and board for that sure. to come out to this show. But we don't like to charge for anything. We do it in the name of Jesus. So everything needs to be free, and he pays the way. That's awesome stuff. Uh, I want to give you that number again for Levi. It's 463-867-7119. And Angela, his wife, is at 463 867 Five one, correct? Yes, sir. Make sure you get a hold of them. It's uh, it's got a lot to offer, and not just a, sh- a haircut, but a lot of good, a lot of good conversation as well that can impact and change lives. As Levi tells you his story and where he is from, where he's been, and he wants to hear yours. And who knows, you may end up in that book. All right, absolutely, uh, in a good way. What else do you want people to know about your work, your life, your ministry, your God? So one thing I realized in life, like I said, I went from being homeless within 
two years, had a brand new Camaro off the lot, and I was miserable. And my grandmother told me one time she thought I'd be happy because I had a family and all the money I ever thought. I was taking vacations like Puerto Rico for Christmas and stuff like that, and I was completely miserable. And it was because I was missing Jesus. I knew I was missing something. Now I live on bare minimum. Sometimes we struggle. And, I mean, I'm happier. I have that joy now knowing that I'm sober, knowing that I'm living right and I have God and I'm being a godly man. And it's important, like, people in addiction— they get sober, but they still talk to the same people like, oh, I'm sober so I can pull them up out. No, you can't. Quit being naive. What you need to do is put new people in your life. It doesn't mean you can't say hi to them if you see them, but if you want to change something, you have to change everything. Put people with godly wisdom in your life and lean on that understanding and not the understanding of man. Put all new people in your life, new places, new things. And it's going to be a lonely walk sometimes, but you can't lead an orchestra unless you turn your back on it. So... It's, you know, it's there. I've heard it for years. People, places, things have got to change for you to change. It doesn't mean you've got to disassociate. It doesn't mean you've got to look down on. It means you've got to get out of the hole before you can help anybody else out of the hole. Absolutely. Uh, It's you know, the possibilities are there. We believe in it. Levi's living proof. We had many others in his seed who have been there, done that, have the scars to prove it, but now they're doing God's work one way or the other. You know, you he may have you doing it as a barber. He may have you doing it as a ditch digger, a truck driver, a Ph.D. We don't care. We just want you to become the you you were created to be. And when that happens, my life's going to be better as well. Levi's life's going to be better. His family, my family, we're in it together, folks. Let's continue to battle it together. Levi, the name of our podcast is Faith in Your Recovery. What do those four words mean to you? Faith in Your Recovery. So faith is the evidence of things not seen. And and if you don't have faith in your recovery widget, the faith in your recovery is the evidence that you're going to stay sober, regardless whether people see it or not. And I think that, how am I trying to put this? You, you got to believe in yourself before anybody else believes in you. Because if you don't believe you can stay sober, just like you burn a lot of bridges in your life being an addict and living out there, you have to prove that, but you can't go off other people, how they react to you. Like you might burn a bridge with a family member and they're like, you're never going to change. You can't feel that way about yourself. You have to know that Jesus knows I changed. That's all that matters to me. And that's that faith that knowing you are and the people that matter eventually will see it. And the people that don't, don't mind. So that's the faith in your recovery. See the good in yourself, not the bad. And don't get down on yourself and don't get complacent with where you are in life. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where the change happens. How many times do you pick yourself up? Every day. Every day. Pick yourself up one more time than you fall, right? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if it's that seventh effort or that 17th. Stay at it. Uh, The scriptures say God forgives 70 times 7. If it takes that many efforts, don't stop. You know, how many times do we miss God's blessing that's just around the next corner? 
It's one prayer away. It's the next morning. You talked about the the darkness you were facing in that time where you almost took your own life and you tried more than once. You wanted to set yourself on fire, and there were some other elements in there as well. Uh, Give it another shot, folks. Give it another try. Give it one more time. Bring one more person on board. Say one more prayer. It can be done with people with us. I had a good friend tell me something one time that uh, really stuck and it might help somebody. If you're going to give up, wait until tomorrow (laughs) and then give up (laughs) and then just keep telling yourself that every day and eventually you'll get stronger. And like, we all fall short in areas. I might get impatient in traffic and cut somebody off and like, God, I shouldn't have done that. Just because you didn't use today didn't mean you didn't fall short. We all have flaws in life and you have to realize that every day. That's where the spiritual side of the program comes in the 12 steps. Isn't it just a conception to get you closer to God is all it is from step one to 12 brings you to God. And just cause you get through the 12 steps doesn't mean that you're finished with it. It means it's time to start over and hit your knees again the next morning and talk to God. There is no finish line in this is there. Uh, it's no. a constant journey. It's not a destination. It's not, I'm going to arrive at recovery and I'm done. If that's the case, you're going to be back at square one, starting all over again. So I said I grew up in a household full of addicts. Like my father and I didn't talk for years. He left me in a stolen car when I was 14 and moved to Florida. I didn't know where he went. And we ended up like kind of patching things up later on in life. And uh, actually last year he died of an overdose because he thought he had it figured out. And uh, it hit hard. And I think when you ask what helped like drag me back down to the deep dark hole that was it that what i get that yeah sure so you think that somebody dying from drug overdose would stop you from wanting to use them but it didn't like i don't know why but just the way it worked like that pain pushed you back down a deeper hole yeah so you have to deal with it. you got to hit your knees and talk to god on my worst days i talk to god on my best days i thank god and it gets me through it every day like all through the day there might be times that i'm ready to just completely lose it and you have to be grateful like and there's a psychology to it if you talk to god and name the things you're grateful for you can't be upset no more the way the human mind works it will not allow you to stay negative no you start reacting in positive ways and you become a positive person absolutely Uh, it, it just it's a matter of bit or negative if you want to be negative about everything, you can bet it's not going to be a good day. Absolutely. You can bet that you're going to end up with that struggle. Absolutely. What's, what do you believe is your best piece of advice you can give for anybody who's out there living where Levi was? It's not over yet. Like like the book title isn't, and that's the reason why, because no matter where you came from, I always was in the mindset like, this is going to be my life. My parents had nothing my entire life. They were drug addicts. So whether I'm a drug addict or not, I'm never going to have anything. And I always set that for myself. And then once I became successful, I'm like, I can do it. Like, it's the boost of confidence. Even if you don't have a GD, go get your GD. Get that sense of accomplishment. Set yourself some smart goals that are obtainable. And know that if you wake up today, you can try. You don't have to give up. And just because you didn't hit your goal yesterday, without failures, there's no growth. 
it means you're not trying if you're not failing because everybody's going to fall short in some area. You just got to keep trying over and over and over until you get it. Did you get your GED? Let's go back to that a moment. I did. So when I was in a prison, I ended up getting my GED. One of the happiest moments of my life. And I wasn't even close to the Lord then. I remember walking down the hallway of the school in prison. I was like, thank you, Jesus. When I got those test scores back and actually passed it. And then I went and got some other vocational stuff involved. And one of the greatest things I did next to get my license. That's awesome. uh, those those things right there will make you more successful. Like it's only a piece of paper, yeah, but the way the world works now, you have to have it, and it gives you a simple accomplishment. If you can do that after dropping out of school at a really young age and have a fifth grade reading level, then you know you can do things. And if and people in addiction, if you just set a small goal for yourself and hit that goal, it becomes healthy pride. Yep. You know, there's such thing as arrogant type pride but there's also healthy pride it's okay to feel good about yourself don't think for a moment you're better than somebody else because you're not but think i'm getting to the point of being the me i was created to be i'm reaching my potential i don't care if it's different than yours Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't matter what your degree looks like if i know i can achieve a or B, I need to go after A and B and get there and know, yeah, yeah. I can. It's not over yet, as yeah. you said. And uh, that's a good title because that fits so much of life. Listen, Levi, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your your ministry. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your willingness to share that here today and to come to us from uh, from Indianapolis and the offer that you want to go to people and that they can get a hold of you by getting a hold of you at 463-867-7119. We appreciate your time. God bless. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.